Well, having been here for a, a really long time, well, four years myself, uh, rather a long time for us to have gotten to know one another, you, you know that, um, that my practice, well, in all that time that I've been here, is always to preach the text, okay? Always to, to, to come from the Bible, and I'm committed to that. Um, I also committed to, to preaching, which is um, not necessarily the same thing as, as Bible study. But today we're going to deviate just a little bit. Um, today, a little bit more like Bible study, a little less like um, what is a typical homily. Homily, really, you know, to wrap a story around the biblical story and, and to bring us into that. But today's text is really, it's important. It's, it's confusing, I think. Um, it, it's brought forth a lot of, uh, I think, erroneous teaching. And it, it calls then for a, a little bit more clarity, a little bit more direct approach. I'm going to invite you to take your, um, your bulletin and turn to the epistle lesson, um, which is found on page 6 in your bulletin. And we're going to look at this, this part of a letter, Paul's second letter to the church at Thessalonica. This is one of the, as I said last week, one of the earliest writings that we have. First Thessalonians is probably the earliest document we have in the New Testament. It was written before any of the four Gospels were written, and before any of Paul's other letters were written. Maybe Galatians, little argument there, but probably before even Galatians was written. Written before Peter, James, John wrote their epistles, and certainly before the book of Revelation was written. One of the earliest documents. And Paul writes the first letter to the Thessalonians to kind of instruct them on several things. One of which is the return of the Lord, the second coming of Jesus. He, he seems to have, after he wrote that letter, showed up in Thessalonica, was preaching to them, and taught them about this same subject. It still didn't seem to get through, and so he had to write a second letter, which we have here in front of us today, Second Thessalonians. I would note that you should see in verse 5 of chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 5, if you can find it, Paul says, Do you, that, do you Thessalonians, not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? <laughs> Here's one of the problems we have. It, he references oral teaching that we're not privy to. He says, you remember the, the, the sermons that I preached when I was with you? You remember the lessons that I taught you? And I imagine all the Thessalonians were like, oh yeah, we remember those. But I look out to you, people of Holy Trinity Hudson, do you remember them? No, you say. We weren't there. Exactly. And so part of our problem in, in uncovering what he says here is that we don't have access to that other material. But there is a lot that he says here, and so we can, we can certainly look at that. What does Paul say? Chapter 2, verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. What he's about to talk about is the return of Christ. Um, the, the, the return, the, the unveiling, the revealing, the appearing of Jesus. The word in Greek is the parousia. The parousia of Jesus, the appearing of Jesus. Now, you know, in, our, in the Bible and in historic Christian teaching, Jesus uh, was born, lived, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, was buried. He rose again. He ascended into heaven. And what did all the creeds say? And he will come again. One of the things that I think 
this, this passage of Scripture points out to us is that Paul is saying to us, don't forget that we live in a moment where we are waiting for the return of Jesus. This is part of the Christian hope. You say, well, it's been 2,000 years. You know, it's been a while. I know. But if you look at human history, it, it always is, takes a while. God is at work saving all of human history, all of human persons, and more than that, all of creation. This is part of God's grand plan, and it's not done in a single moment, but rather over the course of time. I would also point out that the Christian and Jewish hope before this is not that Jesus will return, catch us up in the air, and take us away to some distant planet or whatever. When I was in Kentucky, they used to love to sing this hymn. And it sounds really great with a banjo and a mandolin. It's called I'll Fly Away. Have you ever heard this hymn? I'll fly away, oh glory. I'll fly away. When I die, hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away. And let me tell you what, when we're in Kentucky and somebody breaks out a banjo and a mandolin and starts singing it, I sing with them. I sin boldly, okay? Because that's not the Christian hope. The Christian hope is not flying away. You don't find that in any creed. You don't find that in anywhere in the New Testament. I'll fly away. That's not what we look forward to. The Christian hope is resurrection. Bodily resurrection. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? All the things that we say about Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, buried, rose again, ascended to heaven, will come again to judge the living and the dead. But at the end of it, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body. Physical, bodily resurrection. And in the New Testament, or in the Gospel lesson rather this morning, what did Jesus have to deal with? He dealt with these Sadducees who wanted to make fun of him and say, oh yeah, well, you believe in resurrection? Let me tell you about this guy who got married. And he died without having any children. And so in in Old Testament law, his brother married her. And then he died without having any children. And so the third brother and the fourth brother and so on down the line, whose wife is she going to be? I mean, can you see the, the, the snarky, sarcastic kind of... And Jesus says to them, you fool, you know, you don't understand the scriptures. In the resurrection, there is no marrying or giving a marriage. There's going to be this unity of humanity together with God. Resurrection is the Christian hope, not flying away, not escape. Escape is Gnostic. It is one of the ancient heresies that the church had to deal with. It is not at all. Christ will come again, as all the creeds say, to judge the living and the dead, and we believe in the resurrection of the body. So the first thing that I think this passage here reminds us is that we are to look forward to or look at this doctrine, the return of Jesus as part of the Christian hope. And it is a hope. And I don't know if, if you've come across much teaching on second coming. If you've come across novels that are out there, left behind, all this sort of stuff. Um, a lot of stuff out there on the market. When I read it and I look at it, I don't find it very comforting. It's meant to almost seeming, seemingly to frighten people, to scare them. To make them, you know, shudder about it. That's not what the second, uh, the return of Christ is about. Look in verse, uh, the end of verse 1, 
here in chapter 2. We ask you, brothers, you see where I am? Verse 2, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed. Don't be shaken, troubled. The word shaken here is, um, is like a ship that's out in the water and a violent storm comes and it has no anchor. Imagine it just kind of back and forth. Paul says, I don't want you to be like that. I don't want you to be shaken back and forth. Agitated. Um, you know, like a washing machine. You know, that, I think they even call it an agitator. I don't know because I don't really don't know much about washing machines. Uh, but, you know, back and forth. You know, the, the, there's this, this turning about. This happens internally, doesn't it? Um, just this past week, uh, having returned from, from Africa, I was a full seven days. Felt perfect. Felt like I, 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 was, I was sort of bragging, you know. No jet lag for me. You know why? Because I'm tough. That's why. And, uh, you know, but here in the middle of the week, like Tuesday afternoon, been back seven days, all of a sudden I had this terrible feeling like I was getting ill and I was really getting worried. Oh, no, I'm catching the flu. And, and you know, uh, I felt nauseous and, and fatigued. And, and so I go home Tuesday afternoon and I get in bed and, and stay there Wednesday. And I felt like I was panicked. You ever, have you ever felt like that, where, where you lack sleep and, and you feel really, your heart starts beating fast and you feel panic and nervous and you don't know why? Well, it turns out that there's this thing called delayed jet lag that takes a while for your body clock to realign. And, and that's what was happening to me. And thanks be to God, it did. Um, but in the meantime, there was this real panic feeling, this moment of anxiety. And if you've lived with any form of anxiety, you know what this is like. Paul says, when you think about the coming of the Lord, I don't want it to be like that. I don't want you to be agitated. I don't want you to be nervous. I don't want you to be anxious about it. I want you rather to be comforted by it. Look at the end of the lesson, will you, in, in verse 16. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself God, and God our Father who loved us and gave us, look at this, eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Comfort your hearts. Do you hear that? This comfort times two, right? Eternal comfort. And then he says it again. Comfort. Comfort your hearts. This is a graceful thing, a gift. As we think about the return of the Lord, it should be in this way. That He is coming, and that's a good thing. That He has our life held in Him in the meantime. This ought to bring comfort, joy, delight. Not anxiety or uncertainty. Nevertheless, Paul does say there is something to think about. And that is what's going to happen between this moment when he writes, probably around the year 50 A.D., and the return of the Lord, which we know has yet to happen. There's something in between, right? Look at verse 3. This is where where it gets interesting and perhaps a little slippery. Uh, Let no one deceive you in any way. I take that to mean that there are people who are out there trying to deceive, don't you? Let no one deceive you, for that day, the day of the Lord, will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. The man of lawlessness. Did you hear that? This is anthropos. This is a human. This man who is without law. Is revealed. So we're talking about a single individual. In fact, in Greek, it's it's ha anthropos. It's the man, the singular individual. 
the human being who is lawless and he is, um, he is without morality, he is without goodness. He, he seems to be, in verse 9, superhuman. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. Look at this. With all power, false signs and wonders, with all wicked deception. He seems to be superhuman and powerful. He exalts himself in verse 4. He opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. He seats himself in the temple. Only God is seated in the temple. If we're talking about the temple in Jerusalem. And he wants everyone to worship him. He proclaims himself as a God. What are you saying? I'm saying this. That before the coming of the Lord, Paul says, there's an event that's going to happen first. And that is that this man is going to be revealed who is this one who wants to be worshipped. He wants to be exalted. He views himself as a God. And he wants everyone to come and worship him. And he opposes anything else, any other religion or any veneration of any religious thing. Now here's the question. Has this precondition been met? I mean, has that one been revealed... And are we now waiting for the next event, which is the coming of the Lord? Or are we still waiting for the precondition, that is, the coming of the lawless one? And then, the coming of the Lord. Well, I think that you have to have a little humility here. And say this, we don't know. Why don't we know? Well, let me tell you about three events. The first one happened in 167 B.C., before Paul wrote this, 160 years, almost 200 years before he wrote this. There was a man named Antiochus Epiphanes. And and Antiochus Epiphanes was a a Syrian king. And he wanted all Jews to be like Greeks. And so he imposed this sort of martial law, outlawing um, Hebrew religion. And uh, he, he came in and he in fact set up a statue of Zeus in the temple in Jerusalem. And there in the temple in Jerusalem, he sacrificed a pig. Do you know what Jews think about pigs? He sacrificed a pig in the temple in Jerusalem to the god Zeus. Now this just freaked every... I don't know, you're allowed to say that? It freaked every Jew in, in, in Israel out to the point of a war. They finally got up the curtain and, and warred against him and drove Antiochus Epiphany and with one of the largest armies in the world out of Israel. They rededicated the temple and that's called the celebration of Hanukkah. The rededication of the temple. Well... That was one event in 40 A.D., just about maybe nine years before Paul wrote this letter, the Roman governor or the Roman emperor Caligula sent orders for a statue of himself to be set up in the temple in Jerusalem. When Paul wrote Second Thessalonians, when he wrote this letter, he knew about what Caligula is trying to do, and that is to set up a statue of himself in the temple in Jerusalem. And it might be that Paul was referring to Caligula. A third thing. In the year 66 A.D., a war broke out between the Jews and the Romans. And by the year 70 A.D., the war ended, and here's how it ended. The Romans laid siege to the city of Jerusalem, and they completely burned it to the ground. And the very last thing they did was to burn the temple to the ground completely destroyed it, took all the objects of worship out. In fact, there's a frieze, a a Roman um, inscription above a building, that shows the Roman soldiers carrying a menorah back to Rome, an object of worship, back to Caesar, 
who viewed himself as a god. And the temple was completely destroyed and to this day is completely destroyed. And do you know what sits on top of that area where the temple used to be? The Dome of the Rock, a mosque. And there's one little wall left. And every day, Jews go down to that wall and they stand there and they wail and cry and say, God, bring back our temple. Well, one of the problems, if you think that this precondition is that we need a temple, is that there is no temple to be seated in. My point is this. We don't know whether this precondition has been met or if it hasn't been met. But it doesn't matter. The coming of the Lord doesn't depend upon whether there's a temple in Jerusalem. It may have already been met, it may not. That's not really for us to decide or to fret or worry about. Rather, what we are to do, verse 15... Here's the payoff. So then, so then, my brothers and sisters, you might say, this might be an answer to a question, well, Paul, what should we do? I mean, what do we do? Do we look for this coming lawless one? Do we, what are we supposed to do in the meantime? Stand firm. Okay? Don't be moved. Don't be shaken. Stand firm. Now look at the next part. And hold, i got to get my eyeballs. You know, I've noticed that my contacts don't have, um, they're not adjusting like they used to. Uh, and my arms are getting much shorter. And hold to the traditions that you were taught. Hold to the traditions. In a little bit, we'll be out here talking about what happened in Africa. You know what happened in Africa? Africans and South Americans and, and some Europeans, together with some Americans got together and said, you know what, we are not going to allow this Anglican communion to be moved. We're going to hold to the traditions that we've been taught. We're going to hold to the scriptures. We're going to hold to the creeds. We're going to hold fast to the faith that has been the faith of two, uh, 2,000 years. These, these two millennia, this, this faith once delivered to the saints, we are not going to give up on it. We are not going to be moved. We're not leaving the communion. We're not running away. We're not hiding. We're not being angry or mean or any of those other things either, but we are going to stand fast. We're going to hold to the faith that is the, the Christian faith. We're not going to make it convenient, you know, because it's, well, inconvenient. We're not going to make it new and, and novel just because it's not popular in some places in the world. We're going to hold fast to the Christian faith. Hold fast to our tradition. And, you know, that's what we're all called to do. That's what this church has been about since its founding. That's, what, that's what, what we're about. That we're going to hold fast to this faith. And when we say, I believe, we're going to mean it. Aren't we? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.